Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and bad martinis for conservatives to round out the week. And, Jim, we were scrambling for a good. We think we got a legitimate good, but uh, we were on the brink of of three bad ones. So uh, just to give folks a perspective of how this week is wrapping up, we would like to officially uh, wish everyone a very happy Washington's birthday. Today's his actual 287th birthday to that wonderful native son of Virginia, if you were with us yesterday. So happy birthday to President Washington. Let's get to the good martini. Uh, the Supreme Court, nine to nothing, uh, making a big step against excessive fines by the government against people. This is something we've talked about a lot with respect to civil asset forfeiture. Uh, this ruling is definitely in a libertarian direction, which we would approve of here, Jim. We've talked about many times before. Uh, essentially, this is from an Indiana case where a guy was uh, facing a $10,000 fine and the government seized his $40,000 SUV. I think it might have been a Range Rover. Anyway, oddly enough, not only is this a good martini, it's a good martini with Ruth Bader Ginsburg writing the unanimous uh, majority opinion. Yes, people, she's still alive. She wrote the opinion of the court. She says, for good reason, the protection against excessive fines has been a constant shield throughout Anglo-American history. Exorbitant tolls undermine other constitutional liberties. Excessive fines can be used, for example, to retaliate against or chill the speech of political enemies, as the Stuarts critics learned several centuries ago. Even absent a political motive, fines may be employed in a measure out of accord with the penal goals of retribution and deterrence, for fines are a source of revenue, while other forms of punishment cost a state money. In short, the historical and logical case for concluding that the 14th Amendment incorporates the excessive fines clause is overwhelming. Protection against excessive, punitive economic sanctions secured by the clause is, to repeat, both fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty and deeply rooted in this nation's history and traditions. There was some disagreement about which part of the Constitution this uh, decision ought to be rooted in. Thomas and Gorsuch wanted it in a different part than the rest of the court. But nonetheless, Jim, the government can't take more than they're entitled to from you, which is uh, a good sign here, a good step in the right direction. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of valuable lessons for those who are involved in the crafting of laws and people like me who like to study policy, the folks at think tanks and stuff like that. There's a reason when you want to make a change in the law, very often you're going to encounter a lot of resistance. This was something that came along back in the 1980s, probably one of the height of the drug war. And uh, I want you to picture, you know, Don Johnson wearing his T-shirt and pastel (laughs) suit in in Miami Vice. And the aim was drug cartels. It was like, you know what? We see these guys. They're making a lot of money by selling drugs. They've got their mansions. They've got their yachts, their fancy sports cars. Not only are we going to arrest these people, not only are we going to prosecute these people, but we're going to seize these assets grab the cash that they have, you know, buried in the lo- under the back lawn or in the garage somewhere or something like that. And a lot of cases they would start selling off the yachts and properties and uh, car- fancy cars and stuff like that at auction. I remember back in the, was that a, it was a college program back in the early 90s, um, they brought somebody to, to speak to us from the Drug Enforcement Agency and he was proudly stating the Drug Enforcement Agency was one of the few federal agencies that at least at that point had paid for itself that what they seized in terms of assets and what they sold at auction 
uh, was actually more than the operating budget of the uh, drug enforcement agency, at least at that time. I have not kept up on this fact. So, you know, that's I'm like, yeah, you go get those guys. All right. You know, that's that's by golly, this country needs more of this. You know, not only are we going to grab you and arrest you, prosecute you, convict you and, and put you to jail for a long time. When you come out, all your fancy stuff won't be waiting for you. Uh, your family doesn't get to enjoy it. You know, these, these are the uh, the fruits of illicit labor and uh, we're going to take it. And nobody had any real objection to that. The drug cartel kingpins had it coming. But we couldn't rely on prosecutors and police forces, you know, keeping civil asset forfeiture in those no complicated moral judgment situations and bit by bit it expanded. And then you ended up with stories of guys saying, well, they pulled me over for a speeding ticket. I had cash in the back seat. They said it's probably illicit, so we're seizing it. And then we had to fight forever to get it back in, in cases like that. Every single government power could be conceived with the best of intentions. It could be aimed at tackling some serious problem in society, some significant social evil. But if you don't have enough watchdogs watching it, it will be abused. That's the heart of the founding. The whole reason we set up systems of of checks and balances and divided the power amongst three branches of government was because absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power is tempting. You know, if men were angels, we, you know, we wouldn't need government, right? So we, we inevitably, we need these sorts of things. And, you know, what happened with civil assets forfeiture, which, again, broad bipartisan, you know, people did not have objections to this a generation ago, more and more turned into a case where it became an easy way for police forces to bolster the bottom line. Um, they started doing it in cases where it was more and more dubious or sketchier or less convincing until one day, boom, you get you know wiped out nine nothing at the Supreme Court, and it's deservedly so. It's really unfortunate. I know it's not every police force that does this. I'm sure you know probably the, the worst of the bad actors, the ones who uh, had to go and ruin it for everyone. But again, why are people skeptical of government power even when it sounds good? It's because how easily it can slowly expand and be abused. And you know, it's a good lesson for all of us when we hear the people talking about, oh, we're gonna you know enact this sweeping change and completely change how we're doing energy policy and decide whether you're allowed to own a car and and things like that. People, we have good reason to be skeptical of government power and what happened in the history of civil asset reform in this country is a, is, you know, gold star underline it in red prime example of this. Wow. Yeah. You got to keep the government in check. And if the government's actions in seizing people's assets has your blood boiling, oh, just wait till we get to our first bad martini. Let's talk about our first bad martini. Labor Secretary Alex Acosta, long before he was Labor Secretary, was a U.S. attorney based in Florida. He was the U.S. attorney who dealt with the case of Jeffrey Epstein. And Jeffrey Epstein is a guy who is notorious for having uh, allegedly sexually molested girls who were underage, 14 to 17 years old. Uh, By the time the research was done into this case, uh, there were at least more than 30 minor girls between the ages of 14 and 17. So charges were coming against Jeffrey Epstein. Alex Acosta was the U.S. attorney. Uh, He and his staff, uh, according to what the judge has now said, this Judge Kenneth Mara, made it clear to the victims in this case that they would be kept uh, informed of the process and they would be absolutely given a voice as to whether there was any plea bargain struck. Well, as it turns out, they were not given a voice. They were not updated on the case. And Epstein's lawyers specifically pressured Acosta and his team not to keep 
the accusers in the loop on this. And for whatever reason, Acosta's office complied with that, uh, basically lied to these accusers, according to Judge Mara, about how they were still doing their investigating and they were going to be kept up to speed. And by the time they were informed, the plea bargain was already done and Jeffrey Epstein got a slap on the wrist. That is a highly condensed version of what happened here. Jake Tapper on Twitter has an excellent thread on this, Jim. Uh, Alex Acosta has a lot of explaining to do, not only why Jeffrey Epstein got a slap on the wrist for allegedly molesting more than 30 underage girls, but why his office would basically collude with the lawyers for Jeffrey Epstein and stiff arm the accusers in this case. Greg, you know, it's a really weird day when Jim Acosta is not the bad Acosta in our (laughs) our martinis. Yeah, when this came out, it just seemed flabbergasting. Uh, First, the rumors have been around Jeffrey Epstein for a long time. You remember the airplane being called the Lolita Ex- uh, Express, but when we, you know, finally got all the details, it was the sort of thing that would make the Mar- the Marquis de Sade say, "Whoa, that's messed up." Okay, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. And then you're saying, "Okay, so why would why would they not?" This is the the classic example of a powerful man basically acting with impunity, doing gross abuses, and and kind of escaping it. Why would the U.S. attorney be be so amenable to all this? And uh, Acosta did not cooperate with the big i think it was the miami herald that did the big story on this and, and it just it was a lot of strange questions this is only step one in the process but uh this you know it does feel like we're getting closer to a sense of justice on this having said that it's really unnerving and it kind of goes with the flip side you know of our the the first martini when you see them coming down like a ton of bricks on the guy who's got a speeding ticket the cash in the backyard why would you not go after jeffrey epstein with nearly that kind of uh uh, intensity. It, it was represented as, again, we don't know. The, uh, this, it's one of those things where it's so odd and it's so inexplicable. And Acosta's, uh, the general wrote defenses you were getting from prosecutors of their decision making here, um, you, you almost feel like there's another shoe waiting to drop, that there's some other aspect of this that would explain this, because otherwise it just looks like the prosecution just dropped the ball. And because this guy was rich and powerful and had famous friends and, and folks like that, that uh, they were not going to pursue this to the fullest extent, and they let him get uh, a much lesser sentence than most people would feel these this long litany of crimes deserved. Absolutely right. I think you put your finger right on it, unfortunately. We think of this uh, society as uh, this, the blind justice with the scales, but when you have powerful friends uh, and they have powerful contacts with people in high places, I'm not saying that's what happened with Acosta. We don't know the story. But uh, things tend to go away. We talked about this yesterday with the celebrities, how often things just go away uh, and and didn't in the case in Chicago that we've been talking about. But oftentimes they do. And uh, as if this case weren't bizarre enough, at least one of the attorneys for Jeffrey Epstein, if not the lead attorney, Ken Starr of all people. I mean, I I had seen the the really ugly stories about Alan Dershowitz. Uh, who for a long time was probably conservative's least favorite trial lawyer. Uh, and in recent years, he's become much more of a, uh, because of his pro-Trump stances. Um, lo- you know, they, they obviously Epstein, the, the ties to Clinton, a lot of movers and shakers in both the political and financial world and stuff like that. Every, um, there was a weird statement where Trump had talked about how good character he had. This is back in the 90s or something like that. For what it's worth, no uh, no evidence of, of that. Clinton, Bill Clinton was on his, his plane a bunch of times. And just one last point about Acosta. Um, look, you know, it certainly seems inexplicable. When, when, some, when somebody makes a decision that looks really odd, really unnerving, troubling, you know, all the adjectives you want to put in there, it's one thing if they make it and then, okay, well, here's the explanation. Acosta has not really given us... 
not terribly long and detailed. Here's why I accepted that, you know, um, Jeffrey Epstein knew, knew where there was a nuclear bomb in Florida and he helped us defuse it. Okay, all right, that would explain these sorts of things. Because Epstein would have to have something else really big and helpful to prosecutors uh, to justify what seemed like such a sweet deal. Um, and we have not gotten that from Acosta. I suppose he could still offer this, but um, when so much time goes by and you don't hear a good excuse, Greg, a good, good rule of thumb in life is if you don't hear that good excuse, it's probably because it doesn't exist. All right, let's move on to our final martini, our second bad martini, and let's go to North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. Uh, that is a seat that had been held by Republican Robert Pittenger until last year. He was defeated in a primary by a guy named Pastor Mark Harris, who was then locked in a very tight race against a, a Democratic challenger last year. Came down to uh, Harris winning by less than 1,000 votes, but it was never certified because Harris hired this political operative named McCray Dowless, who used what appears to be a very shady absentee ballot operation. Uh, so now there's going to be a new election. Here's Kristen Welker of NBC News with the story. Tonight, North Carolina's 9th District preparing for a new election for Congress. Election authorities ordering the move, investigating after Republican Mark Harris beat Democrat Dan McCready by 905 votes, and there were allegations of ballot fraud and vote tampering. Harris today said he was unaware of any wrongdoing, but now wants a new election, too. It's become clear to me that the public's confidence in the 9th District seat general election has been undermined to an extent that a new election is warranted. Just a day earlier, Harris's son, a federal prosecutor, emotionally testified that he tried to warn his parents about a political operative who's accused of tampering with absentee ballots. I love my dad. I love my mom. Okay. I think that they made mistakes in this process, and they certainly did things differently than I would have done them. It could be months before a new election is scheduled. So, Jim, this seat is going to remain vacant. Uh, governors don't appoint uh, replacements in the House, only in the Senate. And so there's going to be a primary. There's going to be a general election. They're going to do the whole thing over again. I would assume Harris is not going to be part of this. He said he's had a couple of strokes uh, due to all the stress over the past few months here. But uh, this should have been a reliable Republican seat. It got close. And uh, the fact that uh, some of our candidates can't determine the right people to help them win campaigns uh, can be frustrating. Hopefully we can win the seat down the road. But uh, it's, it's unfortunate that this happened, but I'm glad it got called out. Greg, in addition to being kind of a, an embarrassment to the country, uh, embarrassment to the state, um, the sort of thing that you, well, now we can say, OK, there is voter fraud going on. Apparently it may have been facilitated by part of the Republican campaign. In addition to everything else, Greg, this is my personal nightmare. A congressional race that just goes on forever and ever. <laughs> it just keeps getting redone and never always gets litigated in the courts. And, you know, the one the one good thing about covering campaigns, Greg, is that sooner or later they end. <laughs> Sometimes you get a recount, all that kind of stuff. But the idea, oh, God, here we go, a revote. These four residents of this district who had hard fought, you know, uh, a congressional race where you, you every time you turn on the TV. What he isn't telling you is that, you know, he... Uh, you know, got lousy grades in school and, you know, you get nothing but negative ads. You start DVRing all your favorite shows, fast forwarding through the commercials. You have yard signs. People steal yard signs. People get caught stealing yard signs. People accuse other people of stealing yard signs. And it turns out that they fake stealing. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. That's just Jesse Smollett um, who does that sort of thing. Uh, but you, you go through all this stuff. But at least, hey, at least in November it ends. Except unless you have a runoff. And then, okay, we got a runoff. Okay. Uh, and then you got a recount. Uh, now, you gotta, now you have to go through it all over again. 
Um, poor people of this uh, North Carolina district. <laughs> Folks, just pick. Oh, and oh, by the way, you know, the pot, when you have a special election, um, because it's a relatively Republican leaning seat, you may not see Democrats throwing a ton of money into this. On the other hand, it was pretty close in this last one. Um, but, you know, when you get a special election, the, the you know, congressional committees have nothing else to do. <laughs> They tend to spend way more money in a special election than they really need to or ought to because they don't want to have that bad narrative of losing a special election. So it's possible they're going to get another couple of months of negative ads and stuff going all over again. And, you know, this will be, Greg, the never ending election. Yeah, this one's going to go on three years. And then as soon as we have a winner, it's time for the 2020 cycle. So buckle up, North Carolina nine. You're going to love it. Look at the upside, North Carolina. Your governor's not Ralph Northam. Jim, we are recording this uh, right around noon on Friday. We just got done talking about Alex Acosta and the shady deal with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. This is not a joke. Uh, Robert Kraft, the billionaire businessman and owner of the New England Patriots, uh, is being arrested in related to a prostitution and human trafficking scandal. WPTV NBC5 uh, in the Palm Beach area says in his Tuesday news conference about a major human trafficking investigation, Martin County Sheriff William Snyder said about 100 men would be arrested. When asked about prominent people or celebrities, Snyder said, there will be one newsmaker in this one. That newsmaker is Robert Kraft, billionaire businessman and owner of the Super Bowl champion New England Patriots. Uh, Kraft is one of 25 men being charged with soliciting another to commit prostitution. He confirmed there is video evidence of all the men being charged. What do you think? You know, Greg, we talk about football quite a bit on this program. Uh, you've had, you know, some frustrating years with the Bears, although you had a good one, and you've certainly won the Super Bowl and been to the Super Bowl more re- recently than the Jets. It's been, you know, 50 years for the Jets. I, I had to calculate from my own age uh, towards that. <laughs> and look, you know, uh, and look, when you're when you're a Jets fan, you don't get a lot of chances to raz Patriots fans or something like that. And look, you know, the Patriots have this unbelievable dynasty starting back to 2001. So many Super Bowl championships, so many Super Bowl trips, all pros, Hall of Fame. It's got just an unbelievable record. But you know what, Greg? Our owner's never been arrested for soliciting a prostitute. That is true. So we can hold our heads high. Hey, you know what? 29 teams in the NFL can say, hey, has your owner ever been arrested for this? Ever? Oh, not so fast, Boston. Wow. There you go. Yeah. And, of course, the, the media in paragraph, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, has to mention he's friends with Trump. So, <laughs> <laughs> because that's the most relevant thing. Yeah. Right. Wow. Florida, not your best day. And trust me, you've had some days. It's Florida's fault for having the, you know, the, the prostitution facility there. At least Miami fans can say, hey, you know what? Not our owner. Yeah, so I guess it's not Florida man. It's Foxborough man in this case. There but, you go. Um, <laughs> wow. Stealing that one, Greg. <sighs> Just thinking of the victims, though. I mean, it is. Uh, there's obviously going to be a lot of frivolity with this, but uh, we're stunned. As you, in case you couldn't tell, we are stunned that this news is breaking as we head into the weekend. But nonetheless, that's what it is. So that's what we talk about. Jim, enjoy your weekend. We'll see you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us on this edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Have a great weekend and tune in again on Monday.